Welcome to the More Attention, Less Deficit podcast. This is episode 79, A Century of ADHD. We're finally getting it right. Our understanding of the condition that we now call ADHD has evolved over the last 100 years. The slow evolution of ADHD as a diagnosis may explain why it took so long for you to be diagnosed. The book, More Attention, Less Deficit, Success Strategies for Adults with ADHD, is available at addwarehouse.com and pretty much everywhere else, including on the Kindle. But if you enter coupon code 19380, my zip code, at addwarehouse.com, you'll save 25%. I'm psychologist Dr. R.A. Tuckman, author of More Attention, Less Deficit, and Integrative Treatment for Adult ADHD, a practical, easy-to-use guide for clinicians. For more information about either book, archives of this podcast, links to past presentations, handouts, and information about upcoming teleclasses and presentations, check out adultadhdbook.com. Although my goal in this podcast is to give practical, useful information, I thought some people might be interested in hearing about the history of the diagnosis that we now call ADHD. It won't change your life, but it may be helpful to know how our understanding of this condition has evolved over time and how that has brought us to where we are today. So this is one of those podcasts that will give some context to better understand ADHD. As much as ADHD may seem like a new diagnosis, perhaps especially to you personally, it has actually been part of the official diagnostic classification system for more than 100 years. The evolution of the diagnosis shows an increasing understanding of the myriad effects of the condition that go beyond the obvious behaviors. Unfortunately, until the last couple decades, ADHD was thought of exclusively as a disorder of childhood that disappeared somewhere in late adolescence. This has had important implications for the majority of folks out there who continue to struggle with the symptoms as adults. As you know, it's not that the symptoms of ADHD change that much over time, so much as that the demands placed on us do as we move from child to teen to adult. So even if you somehow never changed, which of course you do change, but even if you never changed, your life would still change. Unfortunately for students with ADHD, the classroom is an excellent screening tool for difficulties with inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. So the problems are obvious there. When we enter the world of work and have more options to choose from, we all tend to choose situations that favor our strengths and minimize the impact of our weaknesses. So the child who couldn't sit still becomes a delivery man who doesn't have to, for example. This doesn't mean that all of this person's ADHD difficulties have disappeared, but rather that, at least in this aspect of his life, his ADHD difficulties may be less apparent. What this also means is that it's easy to understand why ADHD was thought to disappear into adulthood. One of the first official references to what we now call ADHD was made by G.F. Still, in 1902 when he dubbed it moral deficit disorder boy nothing to feel bad about in that title huh this rather judgmental interpretation of adhd behavior will be familiar to anyone who's been on the receiving end of these sorts of assumptions or comments this may even have come from well-meaning family members and teachers looking for an explanation for the adhd person's seemingly self-destructive actions 
In the 1930s, ADHD was renamed minimal brain damage and later minimal brain dysfunction. So, you know, not really getting any better. It wasn't until 1968 that the official diagnostic Bible, which is called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, second edition, called it hyperkinetic reaction of childhood, highlighting the hyperactivity but missing the entire group of people with only the inattentive symptoms. The first studies demonstrating that ADHD persists into adulthood began to come out in the late 1960s, followed by the first published empirical studies on the diagnosis and treatment of ADHD in adults in the late 1970s. In 1980, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, third edition, called it Attention Deficit Disorder and included two subtypes, with hyperactivity and without hyperactivity. So, you know, we're getting closer at this point. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 3rd edition revised, which came out between the 3 and the 4, was published in 1987 and changed the name to Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, making the hyperactivity now, once again, a key feature. Three years later, the first newsletters targeted specifically at ADHD in adults, which were Addendum and Adult News, both of them ADD, um, in the spelling, began publishing, followed shortly thereafter by the first book for the publish for the public, Lynn Weiss's Attention Deficit Disorder in Adults, Practical Help for Sufferers and Their Spouses, which came out in 1992. Not that long ago, by the way, 1992, 20 years ago, um, not even 20 years ago. The first journal article focusing on psychotherapy for adults with ADHD was published in 1994. Once again, not 20 years ago either, and this goes a long way toward explaining why perhaps many adults with ADHD who were probably undiagnosed because the folks they were seeing didn't really think about ADHD in adults, explains why these folks had such a hard time finding therapists who could go beyond traditional psychotherapeutic techniques and give them the kind of help that they really needed. There just wasn't a whole lot of information out there. So in some ways, you can't really fault the therapist for not knowing better. It also kind of explains why if you've seen therapists in, during this period of time, they probably weren't that helpful to you, or at least not as helpful as you perhaps would have hoped them to be. Now, I finished grad school in 1997, which, you know, it's not like that was 100 years ago. And I have to say, I don't think I heard anything about ADHD in adults like Zippo. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual 4th Edition, or what's called the DSM-4, was published in 1994 and made an easily missed grammatical change that has significant implications. The DSM-4 renamed the condition Attention Deficit Slash Hyperactivity Disorder. It added the slash between attention deficit and hyperactivity to signify that the disorder may include one or both symptom types. This was formalized by the inclusion of three subtypes, predominantly inattentive type, the predominantly hyperactive impulsive type, and the combined type who have both hyperactivity and impulsivity as well as inattention. The seemingly minor addition of the slash is important since those people with only the inattentive symptoms till still technically have ADHD, even though they don't have any H, so it's technically ADHD inattentive type 
which is technically correct, but confusing and easy to get wrong. So a lot of people still use the word ADD to specify these folks who are not hyperactive. Although the DSM-4 criteria have a lot of solid research behind them and you know, more than any prior versions, still they're focused primarily on what ADHD looks like in kids rather than in adults. What this means is that if a clinician is strictly following the official guidelines, many adults who truly do have ADHD will technically not have enough of the symptoms to qualify for the diagnosis, which is sort of ridiculous. But that's sort of the way these things go. Now, it's likely that the new version of the diagnostic manual will hopefully contain separate criteria for adults, but that's still not guaranteed, and we won't know for another couple of years. And until then, we're still technically stuck with these second-best criteria. For those practicing in Europe and or in some hospital settings, the International Classification of Diseases, number 10, Diagnostic Coding System contains criteria that are very similar but not identical to DSM-4s for ADHD. In terms of treatment, the first medication approved by the Food and Drug Administration for adults with ADHD was Stratera in 2003. Now, of course, the medications used for kids are also used for adults, and all the commonly used, most commonly used at least, meds nowadays have an adult indication as well, meaning that the FDA has officially approved of their use in adults, whereas before that, they're only approved for use in kids, but, you know, doctors were still prescribing it for adults anyway, which is fine. But nonetheless, it's significant that it's really only been seven years now that ADHD in adults was officially recognized by the drug companies in the FDA in this way. So seven years, that's really not that long ago. So if you look at history here, ADHD in adults is still very much a new discovery. Although, you know, you probably discovered it long ago. But if you struggled for years and wondered why nobody else ever figured it out, this is probably why. So unfortunately, you're in very good company with all the other adults with ADHD out there who were probably only diagnosed within the last decade or so. So in any event, I had a great time doing my presentation on ADHD in couples for Baltimore Chat a couple weeks ago, and I'm really looking forward to doing it again for the Delaware chapter of Chat in Newark. I changed the title to A Happy Relationship in 12 Jokes or Less and use a bunch of jokes to teach important, lesson, important kind of relationship lessons. So definitely a good time. If you live anywhere near Newark, Delaware, come on out the night of Friday, October 15th, and it should definitely be a good time. I've gotten, I have some other in-person and over-the-phone or over-the-web presentations coming up in October and November, so check out the new presentations page at adultadhdbook.com. As a final note, if your wife says, huh, this coleslaw tastes off, you should probably listen to her. Until next time, thanks for lending me your attention.